Are you a small business owner or someone who has a real interest in building your own brand? Then deep dive into the UP Consulting Group's Business Building Bootcamp, the annual convention and training camp for entrepreneurial spirits. Join us this March 5 and 6 to discover how you can unlock your business potential. This program is brought to you by ParcelBear. ParcelBear is the first eco-friendly courier service in the metro. They use craft paper and corn mailers for their packages and deliver the next day. But they are more than just a courier service. ParcelBear envisions their service to be the most friendly and trustworthy in the industry. For more information, visit www.weparcelbear.com. Based on the Youngblood column of the Philippine Daily Inquirer, this is the Youngblood Podcast. Stories written by the Filipino youth that inform, empower, and inspire. I'm your co-host for today, Alexandra Reynel Gallego. I've been working as the Chief Branding Officer of Youngblood for the last four months and guested in an episode entitled ASL. As a health sciences major, I relate to this week's featured essay. What does it mean to be an advocate of science? Does one have to be a scientist in a lab, a medical doctor, or a PhD graduate, or a math or science whiz kid to be considered as one? And is our country, along with our educational system, equipped with the necessary resources to produce world-class men and women in STEM? Anna Tonko answers those questions in A Fine Day for Science. Last Earth Day saw thousands of people from various countries, including the Philippines, marching in protest. This protest was slightly unusual, a bit different from those mass actions that we often see featured on the evening news. Perhaps it was the laboratory coats. All over the world, people gathered to march for science. Specifically, the march was done to protest budget cuts in science programs, to call for support and regular jobs in the science, technology, engineering and mathematics industries and the academe, to shine light on the importance of fact-checking and review in science journals and other publications, and to draw attention to multiple related issues such as food security, climate change, and environmental protection, among others. No doubt, there will be various outcries on how there are many more problems that need our attention. Claims that science is an elitist, money-making industry reserved only for those who can comprehend its highfalutin language and long equations. Arguments on how there is sufficient focus on science and not enough on the liberal arts. Or brush-offs, saying that science is too far a concern when we are currently troubling over the increase in jeepney fare and how to put food on the table. But the March for Science is an opportunity for us to open our minds to the fact that science is in all of us and is necessary. It is science that guides our farmers and fishermen on the peak seasons for harvesting, science that searches for more efficient fuels for our jeepney and bus drivers, science that ensures the food we put on the table is safe and healthy. Science also works hand-in-hand with the arts in improving publishing technologies and media equipment, in the architecture that houses galleries and displays, even just a source of inspiration, in the vast expanse of the night sky, or in the tiniest structures seen under a microscope, we find that science can also be beautiful. This is why there is a march for science. We all inhabit one planet, and we must take care of it and one another, if we are not only to survive, but to live. Our nation is not lacking in scientific talent and creativity. It is in fact brimming with it. We have launched microsatellites into space, found many more unique and rare plants and animals in our forests and oceans, and programmed and developed all sorts of technology to make the lives of Filipinos more comfortable. Banana ketchup, rudimentary medical incubators, leprosy control programs, 16-bit computer microchips, hardier strains of rice, quick-drying ink. These are all discoveries contributed by Filipino scientists and engineers. There are so many more scientific possibilities that can be found in this country, 
if only scientific interests were nurtured in the youth and sustained throughout adulthood. This is why there is a march for science. Filipinos are making discoveries that they often cannot continue for lack of support or education or just the ignorance of those around them. Nor is science limited to those who bear PhDs or MDs after their names. Any person who has made decisions based on trial and error, testing and review, like better commuting options during road closures, the amount of water to add in order to get that just slightly sticky kind of cooked rice, evenly distributing the weight of items on shelves to make sure nothing tips over, discerning if those sniffles are caused by a mere allergy or something that warrants a trip to the hospital, has applied the principles of science in their decision-making. If the choices are especially the kind that will have great repercussions to others, such as decisions in the court of law or in the operating theaters of hospitals, all the more is it necessary that the information gathered in the making of these decisions is factual and reputable. This is why there is a march for science. Our daily lives and the lives of others are hugely affected by its applications and implications. Indeed, our very bodies are born of science. We are biology, chemistry, physics, engineering, mathematics, medicine, from birth and until death. In between, we tend to do what we can to forget, but this should not be so. Every child has noticed raindrops clinging together as they slide down the walls, or the wheels of a bicycle spinning by the push of a pedal, or even the delicate throbbing of their own heart. And no doubt, every child has asked why and how. Bakit? Paano? Those who did not let up in their questions until they found answers and made sure that these answers were backed with reputable proof. They are people of science, be they young or old, no matter what lifestyle, creed, or color. This is why there is a march for science. Ultimately, a march for science is also a march for humanity because one of the most human characteristics is curiosity the thirst for knowledge and for truth. Science is intertwined in industry, economics, politics, ethics, business, culture. It affects them all. In this age of global connections and information at our fingertips, and with so much hanging in the balance, it is our duty to be discerning, to be people of science, because ignorance is a luxury that we can no longer afford. Anna's essay was published last May 2, 2017. She joins her host, Leah, to talk about her passion for her work as a food scientist, her life as a graduate student at Michigan State University, and her advice for young Filipinos who are interested in pursuing a career in STEM. Alright, first off, welcome to the Youngblood Podcast, Anna. How are you? How is your 2021 so far? So far, it's a lot like 2020. <laughs> so I don't know if that's I don't know if that's a positive or not, but it's been pretty great. Actually, just a couple of days ago, I participated in an in a virtual open mic. I bought more new books. I really should stop doing that. And <laughs> but overall it's been pretty good. Good not to know. great, but not terrible. So I think that's the that's the most we can ask for at the moment. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for sharing. And I hope it continues that way, hopefully for the better, for sure. And before we dive right into your essay, A Fine Day for Science, which I really love, I want to ask you an icebreaker question. Are you ready for it? Go for it. <laughs> awesome. So what's one thing you wake up to in the middle of the night worrying about and why? Okay, at least this is not one of those icebreakers that's like, share your talent. I'm like, okay, I don't... This one, <laughs> yeah, no this pressure. One, this one I can answer a little better. Okay, so I still worry very much about COVID. So we're actually approaching the anniversary of when this kind of really entered and became a, an issue in the Philippines. 
but I haven't really settled into any sort of normalcy or comfort about it. There's so much about it that we still don't know. And it's something that's still changing rapidly. You know, I have friends and family who have fallen ill with it, uh, who are frontliners in the fight against it. And unfortunately, I also know some who have died because of it. And at the same time, there are still others who really carry on without any regard for protocols or safety and putting others at risk. So it's such a heavy thing that I can't help but worry about it. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with you. I think right now, nothing's more important than solve this COVID-19 chaos. And I'm just really glad that vaccines are on the rollout and that at least the rates are getting lower. But still, there's that like worry behind it. And what if everything kind of screws up in the end, like, you know, mutations and stuff like that. So I totally relate with you on that. And yeah, thanks for playing along. It's kind of weird to start off with like a heavy topic. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful because the rest of the conversation will be a little bit light and fun and hopeful. So I'm excited for that. So yeah, the first question I always ask featured writers is this. So what's your young blood story? Why did you write this essay? What pushed you to send it for publication? And what was your reaction when you found out that it was published? So I wrote this essay back in 2017. So around that time, there was a lot of uproar on social media about anti-intellectualism, plagiarism, how facts are stated in a public forum. And honestly, that's a discussion that's still ongoing today. Um, why did I write it? So some people are driven to write because of inspiration, creative muses, great ideas. In my case, at that time, I was driven by frustration. I, uh, personally, few things tick me off more than when a person's response to a well-thought-out answer is, So I kind of felt like I wanted to channel that into writing. But I'm actually not sure why I sent the essay to Youngblood. I mean, my drafts folder in my computer is a testimony to the volume of things I write that never see the light of day. But I think during this time, I felt a certain sense of urgency when I wrote it. It was an urgency to not just get my thoughts onto the computer screen, but to actually share them with others in the hope of meaningful discourse. And honestly, I don't like I didn't really know any other publishing platforms that I could send this to. And I guess fun fact, I came up with the title last minute. So it's a line from the cartoon Dexter's Laboratory. And obviously, I love that show as a child. And I still ascribe to that feeling very much today that every day is a fine day for science. And how did I react when I found out it was accepted? I actually didn't find out until literally someone called me and said that they saw my name in the paper. And at first I thought, I was like, oh my God, what did I do? <laughs> why, why am I there? <laughs> but uh, I, w I was floored, obviously. Um, it felt very exciting. And I, I was just genuinely surprised that this was something that resonated with people. Because as I guess you could tell from reading the essay, you know, science isn't necessarily what a lot of people would think as something fun to talk about. So the fact that it was something that editors of a top newspaper thought was worth publishing, that felt really good. Yeah, thanks for sharing and delayed na to, but still congrats for getting published. And it's interesting that you said something about how you have like a multitude of drafts on your laptop just sitting around. <laughs> and that kind of just gives me the idea that you are a writer by heart. And so I'm I'm interested, how did you become the writer that you are today? Or even so, would you consider yourself a writer? This is, okay, I, I really struggle with this question. Because in my mind, there's like this preconceived notion of what a writer should be. And I personally don't feel that I am there yet. Um because I've done different kinds of writing. I have published articles in scientific journals. So scientific writing is one thing. I've done this for Young Blood, so that's published opinion. But for me, I feel like I'm not a real writer if I haven't published a book. So it I it may be the wrong opinion. And I and I, you know, I struggle with imposter syndrome very much so. But I have always loved writing. Whether or not it was something that I actually shared with people and you know, sometimes I don't, or if I do, I use a pen name. But I always felt that whenever I experienced something or felt something, I would process it best when I wrote it down and thought about it. So if that makes me a writer, if it means 
putting ideas out there and creating something from thoughts and putting them into words on a page, then I would love to believe that I am. You are. And I feel like obviously you have to be like a voracious reader to have, you know, the knack for writing first and foremost. So I'm interested, who are your favorite writers and what are your favorite books? That is a very challenging question because I feel like the answer changes from day to day. I can probably say that definitely Neil Gaiman is one of my top favorite writers, especially for for both fiction and nonfiction, honestly. He really has a way of conveying thoughts and emotions and scenes that make it feel alive and magical, even though it could be something as mundane as just sitting in the bus stop waiting for a ride. There's He puts a certain kind of magic in his story. So he is definitely one of my favorite authors but I really can't pin down if I have a favorite book of his that's very difficult or favorite books in general because I would really go through a lot yeah and that's just an amazing segue I guess and going back to Neil Gaiman your favorite writer and also one of my favorite writers um when he said something about writing for writing's sake you know whenever he said that people came to him and congratulated him for a bestseller or whenever he won an award and people said thank you I resonated with this. Thanks for writing this. And then he'd think, I didn't write this for you. You know, I didn't write this for the award. You know, as weird as it may sound, it's a little bit kind of negative. Um, I wrote it for myself, first and foremost, not for anyone, not for the award, not for you. Um, so it just goes back to what you're saying, that do what you love. And then even if you don't get anything in return, you have that fulfillment. And then the awards or whatever are just the cherry on top of it all. So yeah, I genuinely agree with that. And I do agree with that statement. Yeah, and also, <laughs> returning back to your essay, which is a testimony of your apparent passion for science, I want to know, did you always have that energy and commitment for the sciences ever since you were a kid, or were you a late bloomer in the sense that you developed this love for it after you got out of school or later in life? Basically, how did you become the passionate scientist you are today? Yes, I think I always did love science in some way, in its most abstract form, at least. My family never actively pushed me into pursuing STEM, uh, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. But science books were just as accessible as literature books in my house. And I ended up loving both, as I shared with you earlier. I have bookshelves and bookshelves. I think that is the main composition of, of my room. And I grew up watching Cine Escuela and the Knowledge Channel and recording them on VHS tapes to watch again. I asked for a microscope for my 10th birthday. And for me, the best thing about going to hotels was that both National Geographic and Discovery Channel were available on the TV. I was a weird kid. <laughs> but I was a bit tempered in my enthusiasm because I wasn't a great student academically. And I really struggled with mathematics. Honestly, few things felt as victorious to me as getting that tres in Math 54. Best feeling ever. My struggle with math kept me from pursuing engineering or other pure sciences, air quotes. But it wasn't enough to turn me away from STEM altogether. I mean, at this point in high school and college, I could very keenly see that science wasn't all of that fun and sexy stuff that I would read about in my time life encyclopedias. There's a high level of work and detail and experimentation and failure that goes into it. And I remember my mom seeing me cry over my math exam results, telling me, it's okay, it's all right if I want to pursue a different career. But it never crossed my mind to leave the sciences. In terms of the profession, though, or specialization, I chose food science, funny enough, because I watched a lot of reruns of the Food Network show Unwrapped. In general, I really, really adore material sciences, how things are made, why they are built the way they are, what they're capable of doing, what roles they play throughout history and society. But food in particular drew me in because I personally see it as the most intimate of materials that we interact with because we don't you know, just interact with it. We consume it. We partake of it. And it shapes so much of the framework of our lives and our habits. I see. Thanks for sharing. And it's so brave of you to keep at it, even when, you know, you're not like 100% the best at it. Because I feel like it takes a certain amount of guts to pursue something, even when you're not confident in your skills. Because, yeah, I feel like even being a food scientist requires some math. So I feel like, wow, you're literally living with something that you know in yourself is not your best area of expertise or fit, so to speak. <laughs> and that's probably why I, I really looked to you and I was genuinely, wow, when I found out that you were a math major. Like, 
status levels. No, <laughs> I got lucky. <laughs> I guess, yeah, I got lucky with my teachers because I feel like teachers play a huge, huge role in developing a passion. I realized over time that it's not so much about the subject because I feel like all subjects are cool in their own way mm-hmm. and so much about the teachers that make you feel excited about the subjects and how they present it and how they guide you. So for sure, I was lucky for math and you were lucky, I guess, to be in the sciences. Yeah, so, so thank you to our teachers <laughs> for sure. Yeah, and I feel like you're not weird, honestly. I feel like we're all weird in our own way. And, you know, I feel weird sometimes because I also love Nat Geo. You know, if I'm on my TV, I'd either just be on Nat Geo, CNN, or Fashion TV. <laughs> so, yeah, it's either just these three channels on Signal. And so if you were weird, I'd probably be your friend. Like, we'd be weird together. <laughs> um, and I'm interested now, what's your favorite Nat Geo program or show? I'm trying to think now because genuinely, for the, for the initial half of my childhood anyway, we didn't really have kids. Cable. So I rarely got to watch a lot of Nat Geo. Again, it was something that I would look forward to when oh yeah, hotel uh, when I would go to the hotel kind of thing. But, but <laughs> yeah. I, I genuinely liked most of the the shows on Nat Geo Wild when I started because uh, I, I yeah. really loved le- looking at the natural sciences about ad- plants and animals. I always thought it was so exciting, and I think that fed eventually into a, into a love for travel, not just because of the cultures that you could see, which were built by people, but also what was there before people showed up, which was the natural world. And mm-hmm. that's something that I try to see mm-hmm. and visit in the times that I get to travel. So I think I can attribute that to watching Nat Geo Wild a lot <laughs> when I was a kid. Wow, amazing. The show I love the most is Brain Games. Ah. And yeah, it's really interesting. Like you get a lot of fun facts and you don't only like learn them, you also get to like apply them. And whenever I know something, like I test it out and it works on like on Cloud9. <laughs> so it's definitely fun, fun to be like geeking over science for sure. It's cool. Like any other thing when you dive right into it. So I'm glad that you have that passion for it and you're sharing about it. Um, and now like going back to you as a scientist, your LinkedIn profile says that you're currently working on your master's degree at Michigan State. What's something cool or different from the American educational system versus the Philippine educational system? And what great lessons or experience have you had in your journey as a graduate student thus far? So I'm currently pursuing my master's degree in food safety and defense, and I opted for distance learning when I decided to pursue a master's degree. Honestly, if there's one thing I'm grateful for with the pandemic situation, it's that it showed that online learning is just as legitimate as face-to-face learning. And in fact, it's actually more challenging because a lot of the sessions are asynchronous. You receive the syllabus at the start of the term with details and the deadlines and deliverables, but how you manage your time is fully up to you. And in my case, that really includes making time for study outside of work hours. And there's still plenty of interaction with professors and fellow students. And that's where I learned pretty quickly how to manage things like time zones and language differences. I don't know if it goes to show how much the American educational system has influenced ours, but I didn't really notice that many differences between the two. The ways of evaluating student progress are very similar discussions with classmates and professors, research work, exams, usually one or two special projects to demonstrate key learnings. What I do enjoy in this system is immense access to resources. As a student at the university, I get to access a lot of references without having to deal with a paywall, which is a really, really good feeling. And there's also an exciting level of openness, I think, in that it's not unusual for students to approach technical experts to get more information or even to challenge a point of contention. I feel I've been blessed with my education thus far that even in the Philippines, I could consult with other leaders in the field, but there was a fair amount of document wrangling involved before I could get an audience. And I'm sure that at least in some systems here in the Philippines, challenging information from authority figures is something still frowned upon. But so far, I'm really enjoying being a graduate student in part because I get to interact with other students from different backgrounds. So I've had classmates from nearly all the different continents, uh, classmates who are taking the master's degree right after their bachelor's, and classmates who are already working professionals. There are classmates who have experience in government, academe, industry. It's all really refreshing being able to get all these different viewpoints from around the world. 
And at the same time, I can share my viewpoints and experiences with them as well. It's both a privilege and responsibility, imparting information to them that comes from a uniquely Filipino perspective. Yeah, I'm glad you're enjoying your time as a grad student there right now and academia in general. Do you ever see yourself teaching in the future? Yes, I really want to. In fact, that was initially the plan. After getting my undergraduate degree, I really thought I'll go to master's, maybe even a PhD, and I want to teach. I really want to teach. I guess you're right that I was lucky to also have several very good teachers throughout elementary and high school that I looked up to idolized, I think, may even be the the right word for it. But at the same time, I hesitated because I thought if I went and straight into teaching right after my undergrad or master's, what could I impart to my students apart from what was in the syllabus or what was in the textbook? And I figured that one way to really become a more effective teacher is to first go out and experience other things. Because the experience you get from working in the industry or in other jobs apart from the academe is really different. And then hopefully one day I can go back with a richer sense of the world and have something more to give to my students. And personally, that is also why I pursued this particular master's degree with this university, because the fact that they also included a section of this degree to focus on food defense in addition to food safety, this is something that's relatively knew the concepts of not only the concept but the growing risk of food fraud and bioterrorism people actually using food as a weapon and how we can defend ourselves from that that's still something that we have very few specialists in the philippines in so i wanted to also be able to add to that body of knowledge and eventually teach future students that this is something that we have to think about as well can you share more about that i mean how can someone use food as a weapon well it's at this point with our supply chain being incredibly global it's getting easier to do that because first of all i mean not everyone needs guns or bombs but everybody needs to eat mm-hmm. so if you really wanted to i'm going to sound like a serial killer now but <laughs> no if you really wanted to do damage in a very subtle way that is you know, not it's not going to be as explosive, but definitely it could be far reaching. Food and water are your best options because no one is going to not partake of food or water. Mm-hmm. And the different ways that you could contaminate food on purpose, there's a lot of them, whether it's through introducing microorganisms, putting putting chemicals that you know, if you remember the melamine scandal in China, that one wasn't intended to as a weapon, but it's an example of something that could appear as just regular protein in a product if used the wrong way, could really inflict long-term damage on the bodies of those who, who consume it. So if you are seeking to suddenly take out an entire city, one way to do it is contaminate their drinking water. One way to do it is to make sure that all of their supplies of rice come in with weevils, and then they will have mm-hmm. nothing to eat. Chaos will begin, they'll start fighting, and then suddenly you've got a coup on your hands and you barely had to do anything. I think one of the biggest scandals was in the States with regard to lint mm. in water. Yeah, it was a very tough case because kids were poisoned. And for them to show that they were observing protocols, they paid the doctors or the ones taking the tests to produce results that would show that the kids were not actually infected when in fact they were. Precisely. It's and the repercussions are far more than what we would think. It's not it's not always just basic food poisoning. You could have, for example, I think there's a new investigation going on in the U.S. now about heavy metals actually being present in baby food. Now, oh, heavy no. metals in general are not great for humans, mm-hmm. but when you're feeding this product to children who yeah. literally don't have great immune systems yet, and their brains are going to be affected long term by these kinds of chemicals and it's a whole different ball game. There are certain ways that manufacturers and you know and educators alike can learn to protect themselves from this because again war is not always fought on battlefields anymore it's fought yeah. in boardrooms it's fought yeah. in hospitals it's fought in manufacturing uh, facilities. Mm-hmm. It's terrifying but at the same time I've always been of the belief that knowledge is power. So if we are aware of these things and know how to 
defend ourselves against them. That's definitely something that we can look to in the future. Um, so thanks for sharing more about that. And, and now can you tell us more about the work you do? What does a typical week in your life as a food scientist look like? And was it one that you had always envisioned it to be or is it completely different from what you thought it would be? Okay. I am a product development scientist for a food company. So it isn't really quite as pure science as I had initially envisioned, but I enjoy it just as much as I enjoyed the research work that I did before entering corporate. When I was younger, I just really, really wanted to wear that lab coat and make discoveries that no one has ever made before. So nowadays, I don't really get to wear the lab coat as much. And the discoveries that I make aren't quite as eureka as I had envisioned, but it's still just as fulfilling and I derive embarrassing amounts of joy from what I do. So when I say product development, product development and design in the food industry involves a lot of different things. So I've joked to friends that I get to taste test food for a living, but that just forms a small part of what I do. So being a food scientist in the realm of product development is practicing really a discipline of integration. Because the knowledge that you have to combine and process includes information from sensory science, uh, food safety, food quality, microbiology, machinability, raw material interactions, and of course, consumer feedback. At the end of the day, will consumers actually enjoy and benefit from our products? These are just some of the few considerations that I have to make. And typical week in the life really is, a lot of it is actually just think of, making plans of, of how to create products, how to create food. Because on one level, you could have a very straightforward cookie. It's like, it's, it's a dough. You can put some chocolate chips in there. That's fine. But what if we wanted to go a, a step further and make a cookie that could actually address, I don't know, micronutrient deficiency? Is there a way for us to do this without it tasting like medicine? So those are the kind of fun problems that I get to solve because... Just this, So just from the example that I gave, not all nutrients will be stable at baking temperatures. Definitely, there are vitamins that are very bitter and you have to use different ingredients to mask that taste if you want your consumer to finish an entire cookie for them to get the whole benefit. You don't always have to use vitamin premixes. There are natural ingredients that you can use as sources of nutrients. So coming together with all of that, and then at the end of the day, when you bake it, now we have to study how crunchy is it? Does it melt in their mouth? Does that flavor come out the way that they like it? From start to finish, from what the consumer thinks, and then scaling it up to making sure that the equipment runs it properly, and even the packaging, of which is an entire set of product development in itself, making sure that it gets to our consumers safely. Solving those kinds of problems and answering those questions, that's what I do in a typical week. That's fun. That sounds fun, honestly. I feel like problem solving is something that I w would love to do for the rest of my life. And you're solving meaningful and difficult problems. So kudos to you all scientists for that. And, and speaking of the things you've done, I feel like when you see that, you know, pack of cookies or like, you know, a bar of chocolate that you worked on on grocery shelves, you're going to be like, oh, that's my baby. That's my brainchild. That is literally what I call it. When I see a product that I helped develop on the shelf, even if even if it wasn't mm -hmm. entirely mine, but I knew I had a contribution in it. It's like, oh, my God, <laughs> I spent six months working on you. I yeah. stayed I stayed in the plant until 2 a.m. kind of thing. Awesome. It's a, it's a different feeling, but yeah, it's incredibly fulfilling. And I think the other interesting thing is, it's one thing definitely to make a product that is so nutritious and, you know, solves all of these problems and things. But I think there's also that same level of beauty and care that goes into making products that just genuinely make people happy. I mean, there's a reason why we have such a variety of flavors in our products because, and I truly ascribe to this, that people don't just eat food, you know? They consume meals. They experience food from opening the packaging to smelling it to snapping it into pieces if that's how they eat it, that first bite. And they connect to each other by sharing it. You know, there are rituals that surround how food is eaten. So even when we, when we design foods, we take that in mind. When we take that same cookie, if that person wants to dip it in coffee, is it going to hold? Is it still going to taste good after it's been dipped in coffee? Making each food product a, a good experience is, I think, the, the next goal of a food scientist. Because, of course, first and foremost, I want to make sure it's safe. I want to mm -hmm. make sure it's good for you. 
but I also want to make sure that you really enjoy it. Because <laughs> food should be fun. Food should be a source of happiness. Mm-hmm. And I totally agree with you on that because I'm a big health nut and also a big <laughs> bookworm. So I read all sorts of stuff from sciences to like history and stuff. And I read something about how eating and your feeling while eating it affects your digestion and not just the food. It's, That's right. Yeah, it's kind of intense. It's like it goes beyond like just the physical and the scientific stuff, but also like the spiritual. And so mm-hmm. it's said that when you eat, you should be happy. You should have a grateful heart, something like that. And it's a little bit we're kind of going um, on a different path here. Mm-hmm. You know, in general, I feel like, yes, the, the work you do and providing food and then designing it in a way that people consume it with a happy heart, I think is just wonderful and amazing. Um, And I think that's also part of where, you know, being a scientist and then translating it into something a consumer enjoys, that's another part of my job that I really enjoy. Because mm -hmm. if you look at my laboratory notebooks, it's probably all numbers, but then it's, again, going back to the talking about dipping a cookie in coffee. There are ways to measure this. And there are ways to measure like how much force it takes for a bite to break a cookie into. So that's all numbers in my notebook. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I want to hear a person say that, oh, this cookie is so crunchy. Translating, what does crunchy mean? Translating those numbers into statements and feelings and back and forth. Also another really fun part of being a food scientist. Yeah. And I just also want to speak up about math because you just mentioned numbers and stuff. And oftentimes, like people say, what's the point of math if you're not going to be a math teacher? You know, so they just see it as being something that's done in school or in college or wherever where people kind of like try to solve millennial problems, by the way, (laughs) which if you solve, you get like a billion dollars. But that's for another story. But basically, they think that it's not really useful. But then, you know, there's a perfect formula for the perfect chocolate. As you said, there's a perfect formula for a chocolate cookie or anything of that sort. And so I think math is really around us. And we have to humanize it and show people that it's not like just for the super intellectual hardcore millennia problems, but it's literally <laughs> around us, even in the words we use every day, like a dozen, stuff like that really Definitely. matter. I have, you know that I have that love-hate relationship with math. Literally, I rejoice when I wouldn't have to take math classes anymore because I was just so bad at it. But for the very, I think for a certain level of math, I can do and I can appreciate. And especially now that we are really seeing its applications everywhere. It's not restricted to equations on a chalkboard. And I think people are becoming familiar with that. But it also comes down to people like us, I guess, uh, math majors and science majors to kind of highlight that, hey, this is actually really fun. Why don't you try looking you know, the textbooks are fat, I know, but there's a lot of fun in there somewhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that's where speaking about what you do comes in. I just had a conversation with last week's guest and he said something like, it's more important to talk about the work you do on top of just working on something because it humanizes it and allows people to get interested in it, to be curious and, you know, to keep your industry alive so to speak. Yes, yes, that is so true. If I if I may build on what your previous guest said, I think having that human element to not just science, but really any industry is very important because it's also about like building relationships. And that's also why I think when I hear stories of, for example, of big scientific discoveries, like I think you remember when the Mars rovers first started landing on Mars. Yes, of course. And and of course, you also felt that pain when you found out that one of them already shut down. It's all, Mm. I I genuinely cried when that happened. But that's the thing. It's a huge feat of science and engineering to land this perfectly, this little engineered piece of metal on another planet. And it's now taking data for us, data that just looks like numbers. But behind it, there are people who really spent days and nights figuring out how to do this, how to get it to move across Martian sand, how to withstand the cold and the wind. That's a lot of people with a lot of numbers in their mind, a lot of equations. But I'm pretty sure they were also the same people who played a love song to that Mars rover when it shut down. There is that human element as well. And yeah, I for think, sure. And I think more people or more people being aware of that would be a really great thing. Mm-hmm. And who did that for you? Who's someone in the sciences that you look up to and really kind of propelled you to dive right into food science and commit to it? Or not specifically food science, basically just science in general. 
Actually, I think one of the people that I would really look to as a role model is not necessarily a scientist, but actually a science journalist. So one of my favorite authors for science books, science books, air quotes, is Mary Roach. So she has written books about things that people would not necessarily want to talk about. Things about cadavers and the afterlife and sex and the military and the body, you know, and talked about it in a way that it's not just about the discoveries, but about the people who make them. So I grew up reading a lot of her books. And that was what convinced me, one, that I wanted to really get into science because it's super fascinating. Look at all these fun, crazy things that we can find out about our world and what's out there. That's so cool. And two, that I wanted to keep writing about it because this is something that I can't just keep inside my own head. It's so exciting. I want to talk about it with other people. So in terms of scientists, I I know she's not one. She's a journalist, but the kind of I, I really like the idea that she inspires people to enter into the sciences themselves and make those discoveries. Yeah, that's amazing. Writers, you know, writers, like enter. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Thanks for sharing. What's a great fun fact that you learned from the book or any fun fact about science at all that you might want to share? Mm, okay, so I don't know if this is fun, but I think it's genuinely interesting and more people should be okay with this idea. So, for example, there are actually people who suffer from chronic diarrhea, not just like two to three days that you can't go to the office because of the waterworks, but literally like you would have to go through changing diapers five, six times a day. And this can happen because the bacteria in your colon uh, can be, because there's always bacteria in your colon, but it can be the right kind of bacteria. And in this case, when you get chronic diarrhea, it can be because it's overtaken by uh, more dangerous or or the wrong, air quotes, wrong kind of diary of, of bacteria. So normally you would try to attack this with antibiotics. But as we all know, sometimes antibiotics won't fix it. Sometimes it can be abused and it ends up getting worse. So what some scientists have actually done to kind of get that bacteria level in your colon to the right level, they do what is called fecal transplants, which is basically taking someone else's waste, so to speak, and basically, in the same procedure as a colonoscopy, they put it right up your your colon, your up your rectum, and it actually does work. That after a couple of weeks, the microbiota in your colon will kind of stabilize, and the the research is actually really interesting. If you just get over the fact that what they are doing is putting poop up, but I think it's fascinating. It is. It is <laughs> that. That sometimes it's not always it's not always a pharmaceutical solution. There are solutions in microorganisms in the things that we find gross and weird and disgusting. They can also be very important to good health. And I think more people should talk about that. <laughs> I think that I think that more people should be aware of the of the things that fecal transplants can do, and it shouldn't be shunned as of a weirder, disgusting practice. Mm-hmm. Because it's all down to, in the end of the day, it's not waste. It's just where your microorganisms live. Exactly. That's what we're looking at. Yeah, and I think it's the same for bugs as being like the future of mm. food. Like, right, it would replace meat, etc. Let me tell you, crickets are actually delicious, depending on how you cook it, and a great source of protein. So... <laughs> So yes, I agree. <laughs> Amazing. And I also want to share a fun fact. On Friday, Feb 19, the Mars exploration at a glance from NASA sent out emails. I don't know if you subscribe to it. The Perseverance kind of like... Um, yes! You have, you got the email? Heard, Did you get the email? I heard about this. I heard about this. I saw it on I saw it in various news outlets and mm-hmm. social media. It's so cool stuff and I just really wanted to get that out because I'm really excited about this Mars project. I know not the most practical thing at the moment, you know, with COVID and everything, but still something worth geeking about, I think, and also something to kind of be hopeful for yeah and on the contrary i don't think it's impractical because again the the discoveries that you get there would definitely be a big thing for astronomy but the technologies that were developed to make this happen these are things that will can that can and will uh eventually benefit us here on earth i mean i think that we have some level of knowing that a lot of the technologies that we enjoy today or at least a fair number of them were actually developed 
for space or for military exploration, you know, things like Velcro and, you know, that, that's just a, the most common example. But eventually, I think the discoveries that went into making this a more uh, resilient and sturdier rover, this could go into making safer cars for people, for mm-hmm. example. So I think it's also plenty practical, but also just for sure. so exciting because there's a whole other there's a whole other planet out there and we're sending stuff to it. That's so cool. Exactly. And, you know, if, if they were asking for volunteers now, it'd be like in Hunger Games level. I volunteer. I would. It just sounds so fun. And yeah, I was speaking. When I said something about practical, it was so much about like, the business side of things because a lot of businessmen, VCs, were against it because they said um, we're spending billions, literally hundreds of billions of dollars getting this technology done in order to get us on Mars, but what's the return? What if the air is not even safe enough for us to breathe? Or what if it's not enough for the grow crops and to literally start from scratch? So there's that part. Definitely very practical for science. I think, I hope practical for, you know, business side of things. But either way, you know, there's that like push and pull mm. kind of aspect of it, which is exciting. Well, it's, it's inevitable that, you know, science, like nearly everything else, I mean, it is going to be involved in and affected by business, economics, politics. Mm -hmm. Of course, this is what NASA is doing. But I think we shouldn't also forget that there are other countries that actually also have space programs and are also working on discoveries like this. In fact, the Philippines has developed and sent out microsatellites in space. We've also begun exploring this. This is something that probably a lot of people that expect the Philippines would enter in. They would probably say something like, shouldn't you be focusing on you know, technologies involving, I don't know, involving the ocean yeah. or, you know, or marine life because we're, we're literally an agricultural country and Agriculture. we're surrounded by, by water. But why not? Mm-hmm. You know, why not see what's out there as well? And, you know, Filipino scientists are just as good as others to make mm-hmm. these discoveries. Yeah. And it's fun that you said that because, you know, explore for exploration's sake, mm-hmm. nothing else, you know, not looking for the return in terms of investment or, you know, making a big name for yourself once it gets done. But just explore. Yeah. To explore. I think, I mean, there's a part of me that's probably like back in 2017, I would be all, yes! Now, in 2021, <laughs> I'm, I'm a, probably a little bit more cynical and I'm like, oh, how I wish yeah. it would all be like this. But at the same time, I really think, considering all of the mess that's going on right now and all of the the difficulties and the fighting because there's still a lot of it happening across countries it's still a really beautiful thing to kind of just see humans as a species coming together and saying hey i think we can do this let's try mm-hmm. which which yeah. for me is that there's a little bit of that involved in space exploration frustrated astronaut here so <laughs> for sure and now for our youth what's something that you want to say to our listeners who may be considering to pursue a career in stem especially for females and for low-income students i guess the first that i would say although wow this is actually a really heavy question what i would like to say is first don't be deterred by naysayers and as much as you can Still find that spark in what you do. I know, I know, it is easier said than done. Believe me, I know. Up to now, I admit, I still get really a little bit irritable whenever someone downplays food science and technology to just lutu-lutu lang yan. But, you know, press on. There is really beauty beyond the what people consider unusual or boring. And there is so much to explore out there. The fun thing about science, I guess, is that we really, at this point, don't know everything. I think that's also one of the key things that we have to have as scientists, is to acknowledge that we don't know everything. Sometimes we don't even know what we currently do know, like or if it's, if it's still updated, if it's still correct. There's always something more to discover. There are always more problems that can be solved. There are always new solutions to existing problems. So if we thought that we had already solved something, there could be a better way or a more efficient way to do it. And you can contribute to that. So if that is something that you are even just mildly interested in it, I really think there's no harm in going forward to it. So I guess long discussion short, don't be deterred when people say that it's you're not going you're not going to be anywhere except in teaching because I think uh, you and I have literally just spent the better part of an hour arguing that it's not and fan fangirling over science. <laughs> but secondly, 
I guess don't be the don't let yourself be the naysayer either. I mean, I I know that there are a lot of other scientists who suddenly don't want to go further and they don't want to pursue it because some of them think like, is this really going to go anywhere? If you hear that voice inside your head, kind of tell it to take a hike, you know, just for today, go away. Let me let me try this thing out. And I guess just to pl- I'm I'm not getting paid for this, I promise. But I just really like this book. So one book that I cannot recommend enough to anyone who has even a vague interest in science. The book is called A Short History of Nearly Everything, and it's written by Bill Bryson. So I have yet to meet a person who didn't find at least one interesting thing in this book that led them to do some frantic wiki hopping. And what's something that you learned from that book that you might want to share? Something fun, I'm sure, because I think, you know, that's the point of the book (laughs) and it all. So what's something that you find really cool about it? I guess this the one thing, well, not one thing, one of the things that's off the top of my head that I remembered from this book was there was a chapter about taxonomy. This is the the study of what to name things, which sounds very funny at first, but it's actually, and a lot of people think it's dull. They think that oh, it's a lot of Latin. There's already a dead language. Why are we still using it to name things in science? But it's going to be very dramatic. Uh, there were, he discussed there that there were actual meetings where there nearly came to blows. You know, very passionate scientists and botanists when there were proposals to kind of relegate their favorite garden plants into like a little less well-known genus or species, they were throwing things at each other in those meeting rooms. Scientists are very passionate people about their research. So for them to <laughs> imply that, oh no, that your your plant, you know, physiologically speaking, it's not very glamorous. You know, it goes into this group. Oh my god. A lot gosh. of fighting there. <laughs> it would be interesting to be in the same room with those scientists. Yeah. So no, I guess it's not really a thing that it's not really a thing that I learned. It's not a fun fact. But I just thought it was really a really cute image to have in my head. Because again, people probably have this idea of scientists being people in lab coats and thick glasses, stuck, mm-hmm. stuck in laboratories or writing things on keyboards all the time. Oh, keyboards, writing things on chalkboards all the time mm-hmm. and being very socially awkward. But no, I, I'm pretty sure that the parties of scientists can actually be really entertaining as well. They can, exactly. I guess it's because like when you, especially when you do research and you spend all this time and effort thinking and studying something, you can get attached to it and you mm-hmm. will defend it. <laughs> yeah, it's actually funny. Yeah, because I have a friend who's um a comm sci major and he's prepping for business school and he whenever we talk, he'd be like, sorry, I have like five minutes left because my class, my coursework is like a, a jealous wife. That's what he says, literally, because you have to really spend a certain amount of hours. And I relate to him as a math major. You cannot be good at math or any other field without spending literally half your day at it. So that's so true in terms of getting so passionate about it, because it's your time that you put in and also like your interest and all your energy, basically yourself um, in the field. Yeah, And I think that's where, you know. I, I probably that the words romance and science may not seem like they go together, but I really think it is. And maybe not even for science, but really just any kind of foray into discovery or into knowledge. You really sometimes end up falling in love with not just your subject, but the process of discovering more things about it. It sounds so weird, but I still find it kind of therapeutic to, you know, prepare petri plates and to streak it with microorganisms because my specialty was food microbiology before I entered uh, corporate. And is there something really relaxing about it? I don't know. I know I'm literally putting live microorganisms into a plate of jelly to see if it'll grow. It's really fun. And there is art in that. There's a perfect way to streak a plate. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. And, you know, just to be a living proof of what you said that romance and science or romance and anything actually can happen and is happening and is inevitable is that um okay so I don't have like any romantic relationship but I relate to romantic songs especially like the who god can I like, break <laughs> up songs whenever I think of going to study abroad so I totally agree with you on that like, I would spend literally hours pouring myself on the internet, just finding how can I get into, 
you know, school A, school B, school C, you know, because it's super interesting. I'm sure you did a lot of research for your U.S. grad school as well. I did. Um, and actually, the reason that I eventually chose this school in particular is I was fortunate to be able to present my paper uh, during uh, an annual meeting of the International Association for Food Protection. So I presented one of my studies there. And I got to go around and there were a lot of people there who were actually younger than me and involved already in that level of studying. And one of them told me that, oh, actually, we came from this university that allows us to balance it between work and school. Mm -hmm. And even in just that small portion of food science. So under food science, you've got multiple disciplines. Food protection is just one of them. And there were so many discoveries being discussed during that annual meeting. And it just was so exciting. And I was like, oh, I have to be part of this. Yeah. I really have to be part of this. So I kept on, I was, I think that was what really kicked me into high gear from just dreaming about pursuing further studies into actually doing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And imagine like spending so much time on that and then not getting it. Like, you know, it'd literally be like an engagement and then you'd have to like pull off and then, you know, you're going to relate to sad songs in a whole different way yeah. and not just, you know, yeah. So I For totally sure. And I find, I find it funny actually that you said that because definitely like the first time that we tried, uh, my advisor and I, when we tried to get my paper published in a journal, it was rejected and they put all of these things into the rejection note. And, you know, when we went through peer review and some of the comments were kind of very targeted it's like oh my god this hurts more than a breakup oh my god why <laughs> yeah. this hurts so much kind of thing like this kind of rejection mm-hmm. when your paper doesn't get accepted or like when you or for example like when you run a whole week of experiments and then you check the data at the end of the week and it's it's a failed experiment it's kind of leave the lab feeling more heartbroken than any love song could possibly mm-hmm. convey sometimes so what's your message to lawmakers, decision makers, leaders, teachers, basically people in authority who have the power to nurture the passion of our Filipino youth in science? You know how I said earlier that my advice to young people was to not be deterred by naysayers? For this question, what I would want to say to those people is don't be the naysayers. If our young people want to pursue further study and application in STEM, Please let them. Let them figure things out. Let them find the answers for themselves. Let them experiment and test and question and make mistakes and go through the process again. More than ever, new worldviews and creative mindsets are needed to find solutions. And the youth have these in spades. And accordingly, in reference to those who are already working in STEM, to the people in authority, please support them. One of the saddest things that can happen in any scientific discipline is when progress in that field comes to a stop, when a specialist retires or loses funding. It's not like there's always one scientist ready to take the place when another goes. People who have devoted their time and thought and energy to these disciplines are people of value, and they should be supported as such. I mean, I'm sure a lot of attention and support are given to celebrities, The specialists who are building on our global bank of knowledge deserve just as much, if not more. If you have the power and authority to give them even a little of that, please do so. And I think my last question would be, what makes you excited about life right now? I guess jumping from what we were just talking about and jumping from the news that you shared just from just a few days ago, I'm excited about discoveries. Certainly the current situation with COVID, it's definitely frightening. It does keep me up at night sometimes, like I told you. But the discoveries and the actions with scientists very much involved are very exciting. And it doesn't have to tie directly to COVID either. Or at the very least, you know, there's one thing about scientists and uh, different professionals working to find a vaccine or finding a way to make sure it's transported safely. But I think... Mm -hmm. There's also a different kind of discovery involved in how people are finding ways to take care of each other throughout this time, to support each other. Those are discoveries in their own right. And I'm very excited to see 
how much of these discoveries we will continue to make and to share in the coming future. Thank you so much, Anna. Wonderful conversation. I had so much fun and learned so much from you. Thanks for coming. Thank you as well. It's really been an honor. I will admit that I was so surprised when your message first came into my inbox. It's like, I literally wrote this four years ago mm-hmm. in a bad mood. How did this happen? <laughs> yeah. so thank you so much. And I do hope that the listeners during the show also had fun as well. Maybe learn something new. For sure. Thanks again. Anna is primarily a food scientist, but she also likes to wear other hats. She's an amateur writer, a very amateur ballroom dancer, and an even more amateur musician, theater enthusiast, bookworm, and Arnisadora. It's been an amazing journey with everyone, and while I'm sad to be leaving, I am beyond grateful for the friendship, opportunities, and growth. I can't wait what's in store for the team. We'll definitely miss everyone. This has been the Youngblood Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you have any suggestions as to which works to feature on our next episodes, please feel free to reach out to us on Facebook or to DM us on Instagram. We're also on other social media platforms like LinkedIn and Twitter. So if you want, please go ahead and give us a follow. We appreciate each and every one of you. I'd also like to thank everyone who's been with us since day one. You guys are the real heroes behind this podcast. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Thank you very much. This has been Leah Angela Schalke. Thanks for listening. Until next time.